Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And 257 episodes in, we are finally talking about Ingmar Bergman's persona. Uh, spine, probably number one. I'm not going to check on that, but it's like, that's got to be the first Criterion movie, right? Uh, when you think about kind of art house movies and uh, the, this style of uh, European mid-century art house movie this is kind of what you think of and i don't know we never really get that deep into this kind of thing when we talk about godard we often talk about the later works we've talked about some early uh, more out there bergman uh, we've talked about later uh, ozu who's not even european of course uh, and it's not like we've done any like 60s Fellini. So I feel like now, you know, four years into the podcast, it's finally time to go to film 101, break out the Janus Films uh, 101 Essential Films book or whatever, and get down to fucking business. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm excited because this is, you know, obviously, as everyone has pointed out before us, it's a great movie. And I feel like if there's... It's just, uh, it's so exact in what it's trying to do that it feels so dense with meaning. And I feel like a reason why it's popular, it's that it's very like, I don't know, teachable in a way or something like something like Citizen Kane. Like it's the, the reasons why it's great is like kind of obvious and I don't know, there's a lot to talk about there and you know, so I'm ready, I'm ready to get into it. JT, had you watched this one? I know you had your like kind of artsy uh, film education earlier than both of us. Is Persona something you watched as like an adolescent, or was that more like college? No, when you yeah, it? I was uh, probably uh, you. You hit. You're right on the money. I was probably like thirteen or fourteen when I watched uh, Persona for the first time. I feel like that was the last time I really had a big Bergman moment, uh, and this. Um, I don't know. There are a few things I feel like will come up watching this in terms of like revitalizing me to be like, oh, wow, like this dude is actually the shit. And like I want to check out I want to dive a little bit deeper uh, in the filmography because it is something where it's just like especially with Bergman. I mean, it feels silly to say and I feel like it's kind of somewhat reflective of our niche uh, film circle. But even expanding out larger, it does feel like Bergman's influence on like art house movies has kind of waned aside from like very broadly like parodied Seventh Seal like chess game with death moments that seem to always continue to pop up. But I don't know. It's like Woody in particular is obviously citing like Bergman all the time, but it feels like he's less vital to a lot of uh filmmakers nowadays oh come on rifkin's festival was enjoyed by dozens <laughs> there's a youthful vitality to Rifkin's yeah exactly festival, if anything right the the bergman homage <laughs> in that one was really just like film school 101 for a whole new generation exactly exactly so i mean i don't want to downplay it too much but it's just like yeah i remember not watching this but like wild strawberries I saw it for the first time on like my home like 
desktop computer uh, mm-hmm. on like early days of like Netflix streaming. And I love that. And then shortly afterwards, I did Persona. And uh, I don't know, going back to it now, it's one of those movies where it's just like, obviously, I missed a lot watching it at like 13 or 14. Uh, but I loved it, and uh, I still do now. And uh, yeah. I, it makes me want to go a little bit deeper into Bergman's work and do stuff that is not like um, uh, just what he has canonized, and even like the canonized work. Uh, revisit that too, because uh, uh, I haven't been giving him his due. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it's it's interesting. You know, you say like his influence, right? Because Obviously, like, you think of, like, the Woody Allen movies where he made, like, dramas or whatever. And, like, th- like this Persona, like, does Bergman have a lot of movies like Persona, would you say? No, I don't. I don't. I think it this doesn't is... seem like it. I've seen yeah. maybe eight of his movies. And I know that Prison is another one that deals with filmmaking, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, people forget that Persona is kind of a movie about filmmaking if you take the introduction uh, montage to kind of take the mindset for the whole uh, movie and you know obviously you're thinking about an actress throughout this film as well Uh, but from what I've seen this is the only Bergman like that but I also think Bergman he he has a sneaky deep bag as it were like I feel like every time I watch another Bergman I really just can't believe what I'm seeing because I didn't expect it from the guy who did Sawdust and Tinsel and Winter Light and The Seventh Seal. Uh, especially Sawdust and Tinsel, I remember as like a 19-year-old, just that was straight tryptophan. Like, I <laughs> fill me with stuffing, I'm done, you know. Uh, but then when I watched Smile, Smiles of a Summer Night, uh, I, I was floored and I was like, oh, this is, it's not just like the surreal stuff and the big human question stuff that we Woody Allen takes from Bergman, but there's also this movie, which is just like a brilliant partner swapping romantic comedy. Uh, and I just like don't expect that. And then you get Persona, which is like, you know, uh, after the totally dour uh, religious stuff of something like Winterlight, which frankly I am not a fan of, to get so deep into uh, psychoanalysis instead of religion and to take such a radical aesthetic form instead of that fucking dour form that uh, Schrader kind of copies for First Reformed in a way that I like in First Reformed. Uh, I I just find this to be such a mind blower every time I watch it because every time I watch it, I've seen more Bergman and I just come back to this and realize, no, this really is a one of one. I can't find anything like it uh, in cinema or his cinema. Well, you know, I feel like I I bring that up just because I feel like his influence is maybe more felt with this kind of this film alone and kind of like obviously with May, December, getting released but there's a lot of other movies kind of like that like the two women kind of psychologically profiling each other up and kind of uh there's a lot of movies that you know have that uh template you know what i mean and uh it's a very i mean it's a it's a tried and true template there's a lot of great movies that kind of uh came from we've covered structure. multiple of them yeah. on this podcast we've done three women which is altman's persona riff mm-hmm. uh did we do an episode on face off or no, we just no, talked we about Face yet. Off. Okay. 
I know Face Off has been the subject of some middle episodes, but uh, yeah, Face Off, you know, now May, December, of course, Mulholland Drive, Three Women, the list goes on. There are uh, plenty of filmmakers have done their, their persona homage, but also I feel like the intro of Persona has been copied and has influenced more than almost anything. Like that's what just like the stereotype of more out there art house films is, is the beginning of persona, but it's so arresting and so precise and so just vital that it's beyond parody. You know, even if uh, the Simpsons or cheers or any like (laughs) comedy TV show can do something along those lines to show like a crazy surrealist filmmaking thing uh, as a joke, it, it, it will never lose its punch for me how it you know bookends and kind of like the middle of the movie like it's it's done in a way that's just it's like kind of like i don't know just the right amount you know what i mean like and uh especially you know i saw this like four and a half months ago in a theater it was screening so i'm kind of glad we're doing this now i got a chance to rewatch it because i feel like i you know really know the movie now and like just that the intro really is kind of like arresting because i kind of forgot about it and like it you know when it it hits it kind of you know it kind of reminds me of like uh like a kenneth anger movie or whatever you know what i mean yeah it shows that yeah i think you're right with kind of like bergman's past filmography it kind of tunes you in right off the bat that he's tapping into something a little bit different here than he is the rest of his movies something a little bit more modern cutting edge and you know the intro fits that psychoanalysis and cinema were basically co-invented uh at like the turn of the century in europe it's like you got the lumieres in france and you got freud in austria and it's this confluence of human ideas and it takes a while for people to really uh put two and two together with these two new fields there's the primitive associations that you make and there's uh you know obviously people were thinking a bit about psychoanalysis early on but uh, then you get like 50s movies like Douglas Sirk and Nicholas Ray, those big melodramas that are so psychoanalytically dense, uh, but that's all beneath the surface, right? And I feel like it takes until the mid-century art house stuff like this uh, to really see these two forms like intersect at a level like this. Uh, the The opening is all about mental associations and the psychoanalytic phenomenon of editing of montage uh montage theory isn't just about brainwashing communists it's about uh like digging into the the human psyche and figuring out what's going on up there uh and so we we obviously see this series of images whether there's a uh, a, a man's penis or a, a little boy's cartoon fantasy uh or anything like that or uh you know J- jesus's hands or you know i guess we just see hands getting nailed uh to a board and you assume it's Jesus's hands getting nailed to the sides of the cross. Uh, And it's just all of these things that would influence uh, the psychoanalysis, uh, the, the psyche of a person born and raised on this time period where Bergman has lived. You see, you know, World War II and even uh, TV footage of Vietnam that makes it not really exist in a vacuum, but makes it a little more urgent. Like, oh, this is like a mid-60s movie. We are seeing this in a time where people are conscious of Westerners, uh, you know, just 
pillaging uh, the Southeast Asia. And yeah, I just think that like uh, these two ideas of psychoanalysis and filmmaking kind of building up to this moment of both internalizing a person's brain through montage and just demonstrating the capabilities of character analysis uh, and how deep you can get in interiority uh, through direction and performance with these two characters is just like stunning. I mean, it's uh, we haven't really talked about what the movie's about, right? But uh, we can keep going like this if you want. Yeah. Again, before we dive too much into it, uh, like the plot, I mean, which I feel like there is very sparse i feel like it is kind of a film that like works more for like uh jumping off of but even like like this time i was really taken aback by like things like even like production design because i feel like it's like so purposefully kind of sparse and like cold like cold especially in like the hospital stuff at the very beginning mm-hmm. where it does like it does me it gets so into that like kind of dream like setting and i mean certainly like there's a lot of it like later where it's like camera work where it's just like you're only watching like two faces like framed against each other but like i don't know that alone like gets you into that like weird like dream like headspace yeah I don't know if it's a, a doctor or if she's just a, an older nurse, but the, the you know, the female nurse character that's not Alma, that's kind of like giving her the directions at the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie. It is very dreamlike and like kind of just like direct and like, I, I, you know, just kind of, I thought it was funny, like the way she was telling her job, it kind of sounded like the Mission Impossible intro like you yeah know, you're getting a debriefing yeah, yeah yeah getting she's getting like debriefed and like told like her mission like you know we just cut into it and it's i don't know i just thought it was kind of funny that like it's what jt's saying it gives like an off-kilter atmosphere like it's almost like she kind of like knows something that she doesn't like she like almost like she knows that alma's about to go on like this you know insane uh, psychological journey But at the same time, I think Alma knows that she's in for something out of the ordinary dealing with this actress. We get that very quick pan down uh, to her hands from the shot of the back of Alma's head. And we see her like twiddling her hands like girlishly, you know, and it's Bergman showing us that she's like, oh, shit, I could just take care of this big famous actress who lost her power of speech fuck yeah let's let's get crazy you know uh like it's almost like uh as you said malcolm like the beginning of a an action movie where you're getting debriefed on your mission you get that little tingling of excitement there knowing you're in for some crazy shit about what the movie's about so obviously you know you have this story of uh, a woman who has lost the power of speech and a nurse who tries to take care of her psychological games ensue if you will but uh, you know it's like what do you really get out of saying a plot of a movie like this so i wanted to read something from uh jonathan rosenbaum about like narrative and non-narrative films when the synopsis straitjacket became impossible an actual form of censorship was when I had to impose it on Dreyer's Vampire, a movie that can be read as a paraphrasable story only if one ignores all the syntactical contradictions in its construction. 
Thanks to my own sub-literary training, this is an aspect of the film that I was literally unable to see or hear until I started examining the film closely. A plot summary in this case represents a refusal to look at the film closely, a smoothing over and flattening out of all the discontinuities that confuse the spectator's unconscious bridge work with the actual substance of Vampire. Uh, He then, like, lists a bunch of other films that fit into that category persona being one of them but yeah we talk a lot about like plot structure and stuff like that on this film and there's films that just completely break the mold of that and are so arresting on a moment-to-moment basis and it's almost like the filmmaker knows it's that arresting on a moment-to-moment basis that they don't have to play by any narrative conventions and they know that you are going to just be in the pocket for every scene yeah well i mean i watched i watched a little supplemental materials uh something i actually don't often do but i uh I saw a little Bergman interview on Persona, and it's actually funny because they ask him if, uh, like, oh, like, there's some, like, new, like, style to your movie. Is it, like, Godard-inspired? And he's like, no, I actually hate that guy. (laughs) (laughs) And he's actually, to be honest, I never saw him in an interview before. He kind of has a very normal guy disposition that I I guess I would have expected, maybe, but I don't know. It was just a kind of a, he was very uh, satisfied with his answers in the interview, and, uh, you know, the there it was about Persona, the interviewer, and they're asking him, you know, the classic, "What's this movie about, man? I can't figure it out." You know, uh, he's like, "Well, I don't, I, you know, I kind of left it open so you could take your own in- interpretation." You know what I mean? Like, it's obviously, uh, you know, Bergman. Bergman agrees. It's and obviously anyone watching it could take that from it. But you know, even him himself, it's like, yeah, there's no like. Yeah, nothing really happens, but you know, it's about what happens when nothing happens. You know, so it's a. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was just funny seeing Bergman in an interview and kind of, uh, you know, getting ants. I, I like when there was talk shows, you know, asking directors about like persona and something like that. It's kind of a, a throwback there. Bergman joins the couch. Rodney Dangerfield has to scoot over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Swedish, Swedish, um, the Swedish version of him. Swedish Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> Not going to do a voice, but let's just say it, this is a guy who doesn't get any meatballs. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking, I'm like, where to go with that? Where, yeah, where's, like, yeah, where's it going? Yeah. Back to that opening barrage of images. I, I just feel like uh, it, it's great how that image of the boy reaching out to the screen uh, once you realize you're in a hospital, it almost feels like that could be almost anything. Like that could be another room in the hospital, not just like the framing of the whole movie. Uh, because of how like sterile and white and everything is, and that just made me think about how it could also represent the birth of a person, which ha- often I don't know if you guys know this happens at a hospital. And so it's this thing where it's equating uh, the birth of the thinking human uh, with film. You have these film reels running the whole time and these cuts jumping in. And as I said, you know, cartoons and pornographic images and war images and animal slaughter. And it's like everything that a person in the mid-century would be afraid of, I guess, kind of on his bow is afraid type shit. Uh, But it's great how it's so like 
off kilter and like I don't know angular cutting on like uh, weird sound effects and shit, and it just gets you ready for a much more locked down and slower approach. And I just love that dynamic between the two forms. You know, on a more like juvenile level, you know, with like the the penis being in there. Just thinking mm-hmm. about that, like, do you think like people in the sixties? That probably might have been the first time people saw the penis in a movie theater like that. You know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. know how popular persona was like i don't know if like you hear back in the day like fellini was a little bit more popular amongst american people than you know it usually i feel like persona was definitely like an art house hit so i definitely buy that that's the first it played the new york film festival you know it opened in sweden before what i'm thinking is you know how big are these screens in sweden (laughs) and is this (laughs) the biggest penis that these people have ever seen (laughs) in their life (laughs) It's huge. Uh, like Attack the, of the 50-foot penis. Like the train in like the 1800s, the train movie. Like how everyone oh, I was going to say the train from uh, The Greatest Show on Earth and The Fableman. You see... Uh, <laughs> the train yeah. from The Fableman. Seeing the penis in persona and then going to recreate that at home. <laughs> yeah. And then like trying to get your mom and dad to do it, but your mom's just doing it with your dad's best friend. And <laughs> And you make that intro to Persona <laughs> footage of <laughs> Movies are like dreams that you, I hope, not forget because you're going to have to talk about them for hours upon hours in therapy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the penis, I feel like, is honestly a good jumping off point for, like, uh, something. I mean, I want to get into... Yeah, he's using that shit as a diving board. <laughs> Uh, um, Because I want to get into the monologue, but it has something that, like, because I'm also uh, as juvenile as Malcolm, I was thinking something throughout the whole movie, I was like, Bergman low-key a freak. Oh, you a freak. (laughs) Like, I was thinking that, like, so often. Yeah, do you know how many kids were in film school watching that scene where she's describing, you know, the boys at the beach and everything? Like, how many binders were covering the laps of young (laughs) film students? (laughs) That, like, it was... And, I mean, I've seen other Bergman movies, and I can understand why, like, someone like Woody takes away, like, oh, this guy has everything. Like, he, like, (laughs) philosophy religion sex and it's just like uh he is uh, like he is hitting on it all like in yeah. uh, in like not all in i mean in persona kind of like hitting on it all in a variety of ways but like throughout his filmography and like with a great deal of like depth and that is something that like i don't know it's been a few years since i've seen persona i had my memory of the movie was relatively like foggy other than uh, like obviously the montage opening, but and I had completely like forgotten about that monologue, and I, I was scandalized. I was like, "What? <laughs> like that's crazy!" Scandalized. Um, yeah, I, it's it's a. Uh, How I could know, they do that? About to fucking her? little like little boys on well, the Well, true. It is. It's yeah. It is. It is a. Oh, is that she's not a pedophile. scandalous to you, Malcolm? She's she's <laughs> a pedophile. We got her. Well, they don't. That's, they don't say that the boys are underage. Very. She's she says younger very, boys. Very. She's she says very. very very young. Very That's true. If, if a mid-century European says very young, that means like 12. I think very is yeah. like the guilty part, right? Like if you're yeah. in the court, it's like, what does very mean? Like very means like 
under something, right? Under some. You sort are of right. Limit. Woody Allen would think he has it all. <laughs> I just, I, you know, in a day and age where everyone's trying to round up the pedophiles, I think I might angrily comment on the Criterion Persona page, being like, "No one's, no one's exposing, you know, the people in this movie." Frankly, I think people trying to round up the pedophiles—that's like passe at this point. True. It's a. We moved on. Nobody cares. <laughs> on to the next thing. <laughs> Um, so the the instructions are given, the debriefing is done, and uh, very early on, visually, we're introduced to this idea kind of as the face uh, as a landscape. And it's funny to think about because it's almost the opposite of the way that Antonioni did this in uh, La Ventura and that whole trilogy with Monica Vitti. Bergman will just kind of use someone's face to take up half of the frame as if it's a mountain or something like that. Uh, and he, he uses all these weird cockeyed angles with people laying down and, you know, uh, bending their head down in very specific ways. And he's really uh, he's taking from pretty much everyone uh, like around him. I, I would say he's using Antonioni and Brisson uh, as his contemporary influences here, uh, especially with the way that he uses the actors as models in some of these scenes with these very unnatural gestures that are really only there for the sake of perfect framing and uh you know dissolves and the way that he's using very precise lighting uh and in that sense i would say you know uh the the lighting and the chiaroscuro of the black and white and the texture of the lighting uh really the only comparison point i can think of is like mizaguchi maybe i i don't know anything else that looks like this well it is it is the black and white in this movie is like this is like one of the great like you know, modern, you know, black and white moves, the lighting of everything, you know, what Eddie's mentioned, mentioning and like the, the darkness of everything just really gives it, you know, really leans into it's like black and white look. And like, um, you know, it's also a great example of like form meeting, uh, you know, what's going on in the story, even though it is somewhat light, kind of like, you know, Bergman is still giving you a tether, you know, it's not so experimental, you know, where it's like, it's playing off the tension of these two women and kind of, uh, you know, with one being silent and, uh, and Alma kind of, you know, just talking and kind of, uh, spilling her desires, projecting herself onto her, you know, doing, you know, doing everything in the book with her as she, you know, she kind of just remains silent and she just keeps talking. There's like this tension that meets kind of all the film techniques that Bergman's working with here and just a, a real like masterful, way and like it uh brings up a very you know specific mood mizaguchi is also a good comparison because they feel you know there's halfway through the movie there's like a scene where it's almost like one of them's a ghost or what you know kind of walking around the house and whatnot and uh yeah the the late night visit is what i was thinking about with mizoguchi especially when when the actress vogler comes into sister alma's room uh and sister alma later is convinced that it was just a dream because you know she doesn't cop to it and you know who knows what, what actually happened but the amount of like i don't know if it's just the fog and the the deepness of the blacks and all the different shades of gray uh it's it's so fantastic and there's so many scenes where yeah as malcolm said the form matches the content and he's playing with only two or three tones between black and white it's like a very high contrast movie in some scenes and then some scenes you have like 
a million sh- different shades of gray and it's very dissolve heavy. Uh, and I, I just love how Bergman is just running the gamut aesthetically here from the slow creeping shots to the uh, very still scenes, uh, all still shot scenes, to obviously the more rapid stuff. And then once in a while, a very rushed camera movement to track along with the body uh, always kind of like jolts you into place a little bit. Uh, so they go to the island and the first thing they do on the island is mushrooming and uh, so I, I think that with you know mid 60s counterculture stuff becoming more popular in arts this is a, a conscious reference towards the psychedelic uh, and like what's gonna entail on this I know Bergman is a straight laced religious <laughs> uh, Swede but I, I just think that uh, in terms of the form and the content of the film and the kind of jagged uh, psychosis that it creates is very psychedelic at points. And uh, it reminded me of Phantom Thread, honestly, the uh, the activity of the, the two people in the strangely uh, power-shifting codependent relationship and uh, mushroom foraging being a, uh, a key part of it there. Yeah, if he didn't get it all, he just basically said Bergman had to be on shrooms to make this crazy movie. Oh, yeah, of course, no, of course. No, no I thought that... Yeah. He, he... Also, her name's Alma in Phantom Oh, Bird, shit. So, the for Alma whatever connection. that's worth. Yeah. That's, <laughs> no, that's plus five right there. That, 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 <laughs> that's a multiplier. <laughs> yeah, that, get, that, that makes the comparison go plus five. Where, like, with Phantom Thread, like, it, it kind of focuses on, like, one shift, whereas this one, like, I love how erratic it is from scene to scene you know kind of based off nothing right i based off certain things right like alma does like read a letter at somewhat like near the halfway point of the movie that where uh the actress character is like writing to the the hospital being like oh i'm actually studying her you know what i mean and uh so the different ways that it pinballs around with the power dynamics and how obviously alma gets so um, kind of erratic and feels, you know, many, you know, going through different stages of like psychosis, or I don't know what the exact mental term, uh, mental term or medical term would be, you know, because I'm not, I'm not a doctor. We're not doctors. We're here. dropping mad mental terms on this episode. <laughs> yeah, we're getting psychological. We're opening up the the tech, the DSM psychological, textbooks. psychedelic. Yeah, exactly. This DSM X DXM. <laughs> Exactly. Robo tripping, reading about fucking Frasier. <laughs> That's the type of shit we're on with it. But it, it, the movie requires it, and it just like uh, the seemingly where each other stands, it, it could change from minute to minute. Uh, so as they kind of get into these kind of familiar rhythms on the island. Um, Alma goes about her kind of chores about the place and is just talking her head off because she finally has someone to listen to uh, to her. And the person who's listening to her happens to be a famous actress who she can kind of like project all of her things onto uh, like people do at the movies, of course. So she's projecting all of her problems onto this actress. She's giving her the sauciest, uh, stories, the most melodramatic stories, the most, uh, you know, semi uh, 
spiritual stories, I guess. Uh, just like everything that informs her as a person. Uh, and that, of course, includes the story about the boys at the beach. Uh, the infamous erotique scene uh, about the boys <laughs> at the beach. And it's just all uh, all dialogue. And I, I really do think it's a, it's a big accomplishment for someone as... Uh, I guess not sterile, but so- sometimes sterile as Bergman <laughs> uh, yeah. to pull something off like that. I I I really thought it was uh, tremendous because whereas other films may demonstrate, uh, you know, uh, male impulses and female too, but like sex impulses or so, this is the only time that a sense of eroticism that I've seen has actually been uh, achieved in his movies. Yeah, I guess, like, he was famous for, like, there's, like, someone nude in, like, Summer at Monica. So I guess maybe mm-hmm. that's, like, he's got a bit of an erotic reputation in the States. But, yeah, this is obviously something different and is something that, like, is great because, yeah, we don't see any of it. It's, like, a story that's passed on and, you know, just kind of uh, the powerful silence of the actress as it's kind of, like, you know, kind of, like, eggs her to, to keep going and, like... uh how like how the story is presented and then like kind of like how she feels about it, about it after she tells it is just uh yeah it's 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 very complex like it can it's it's an erotic tale but it also at the end it kind of feels like a strange like kind of like confession too you know what mm-hmm. I mean and it's a uh, very young you know that's kind of that's kind of suspect you know I get you know so. Do with well, I mean, that what you will. She's recounting like cheating on her. Is it like oh, a fiance a at yeah. that? At, yeah, at that's point? what the mo- that's what most of the guilt is about. Yeah. Is that yeah. she cheated on her fiance? Not that the boys True, were yeah. too young. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think you might be getting your uh, wires crossed on May December a little too hard there. I'm focusing too much on, <laughs> but, but it's you know it's 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 up, I, it's just funny that it's there, but it's not really like a part of it. You yeah, know what I mean, yeah, they don't care. They're Swedish. It's kind of the it's the that's my boy approach where it's like good on him no the i saw bergman interview and he did he described the scene as erotic you know what i mean so he was you know he was getting into it mm-hmm. i think it might be a lost in translation thing on the very very young thing i don't think it's supposed to be a pedophilic yeah scene. i'm kind of i'm kind of joking about that but it does say very young so it is kind of like okay that's maybe a. and small, i mean like she's like relatively young too like i don't know look the heart wants what it wants um <laughs> So this scene, though, it does you, you calling it like a confession is very appropriate, though, because this is what leads her to her most vulnerable point, uh, Alma, that is. And uh, it, like she said all she can about her life already and complained about her partner and like complained about her work and told her whole story. So now it's like now I have to bear this thing out where. You know, she's basically uh, doing it as therapy, using uh, the actress as her mirror, uh, using Elizabeth Vogler, uh, the actress, as her mirror. And so it's at this most vulnerable point that she breaks down and just starts sobbing after telling the story uh, because, you know, the story ends with her getting an abortion and, you know, you're not knowing for sure whether the uh, the child was that of uh, the, the boys at the beach or her husband who, you know, she went home to and slept with that same night. It's at this point that she breaks down and starts crying and proposes the question, is it possible to be two people at once? And at the time, you know, maybe you're thinking about her aborted uh, p- 
potential child, like it being the child of both of those fathers or something like that. Uh, but I think it's in that moment where the actress Elizabeth uh, sees her, you know, kind of shifting gears in terms of their relationship, asking that question. And that is the first time that she speaks throughout the whole movie. And she says, go to bed. Uh, and then we see that late night visit once Alma goes to bed. And I just think that passage between the, the monologue, the breakdown and the late night visit, which is played like a ghostly visitation, uh, is to me, the strongest part of the movie, uh, full of masterful strokes. No. Yeah. I mean, that's where the movie kind of like, uh, you know, you know, you don't want to say transcend cause it sounds like it's better than, but it goes to, you know, especially topping it with like the ghostly visit. It's like. Okay, this has like almost like a horror movie vibe to it, or yeah. kind of like this is reaching into, you know, this is not just like the concrete mental problems and them, you know, talking and dealing with the difficulty. It's like it becomes something, you know, like you said, psychedelic, strange, and like it it, it hits a different chord that like I feel like I imagine I don't know I feel like a lot of movies weren't hitting at the time, you know, so like it's. I mean, still now, to be honest. So it, it kind of, mm. it goes into an even more, like, thrilling space. And, like, the rest of the movie is, like, you know, it's, stuff is, like, very unclear. And you kind of have to stew in that uncertainty. And I, I think that's a very, you know, powerful technique. Because it is, like, you know, like you are talking about earlier, if you synopsize this movie, you could be very, like, well, nothing happened in the movie. They just <laughs> they just sat around and were paranoid or whatever, you know. But it's like Bergman takes great lengths formally to put you in that space with the characters. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so the, this mirror scene is kind of the first breaking point of the movie, if you will. It's where the movie within the movie, the movie that is being projected uh, in that first five minutes, starts to, f uh, like fall in upon itself and then it's almost like we got too experimental we got to bounce back to some traditional narrative and so that's when sister alma intercepts the letter and it's a very like i don't know gossipy like uh almost immature bit of conflict going on there with the stolen letter and the you know studying her behind her back and all of that and i kind of like that as a a counterpoint to as transcendent and like meditative as it got before that and will get after uh, but i feel like the the letter intercepting is like that mode of the movie is what may december is pulling from uh rather than you know the slower quiet scenes uh, and that's fine like i like that about may december yeah. I, but i like that it has its roots here you know yeah also the the scenes where the two women stare at each other you know yeah. what i mean yeah. well i was gonna get into the mirror say the infamous <laughs> mirror scene of yeah. course yeah <laughs> well that that late night visit spars the uh or starts the infamous mirror scene uh where yeah they are uh just like taking this weird pose combing each other's hair with their hands and then their necks kind of intertwine like cranes as it fades to black and you know there's a symbolic reading of one person passing into the another uh and of course when she wakes up it's like did you visit my room last night no the the texture of the film is like building up so much and then the projection seems to break and uh it's it's so crazy how the swap just like 
it you can't tell has the swap began has it been canceled is it like what's going on with uh, what what does it mean for the projection of this movie to seemingly break and these effects to come in and i i love how open it is uh to interpretation um and then the next day we get that great scene at the beach which is just like one of the most sparse pieces of uh like design and cinematography in the film you really just get like rocks sky water one person you know uh and that's it and it just looks so gorgeous um so then as the film winds down the last 30 minutes or so we basically just get this sequence of fake outs uh dream sequences false endings all these crazy things where you're not sure whose perspective you're looking into for these little fantasies. One of them is the husband uh, of the actress, Mr. Vogler, showing up. Uh, but then, you know, in this version, the two characters have swapped. And Mr. Vogler is like telling Sister Alma, come home, I'm your husband. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're watching it, not realizing that someone's about to wake up from a dream, you, you're thinking that the rug has been pulled out from under you for this whole movie. And these two people were the opposite of what you thought. And there's variations on this throughout. And there's just like this double dream sequence. Uh, 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 and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper into a rabbit hole until you get this like shot reverse shot close ups of Alma and uh, Elizabeth and she just like kind of has this self-actualization moment Alma that is uh, that's uh, she's just like I'm not Elizabeth I'll never be like you uh, I change all the time and that statement just undercuts what she's saying because yeah. like if she's saying I, I'll never be like you but I change all the time because I am just whoever I want to be. It's like, no, you just became the actress then, you know? Uh, and I love how that works and how, you know, neither side really wins, but it just feels so sinister. Yeah. The, the, the layering of abstraction that Bergman puts on, like in the back end of the movie, it is kind of like, it, it is almost like you're, you're trying to find like maybe a through line, you know what I mean? You're trying to, put your detective hat on you're like what's this about and like he just kind of uh you know any sort of thread you know he lays there he it just it gets scrambled and it's just very impressive of how like i said before how it just the dynamic just keeps shifting and shifting and uh i don't know like it's it's a uh, you know you come to a point where you're just kind of like expecting anything at, at a certain point and uh uh, with the movie and it, it's it, I don't know it's very exciting in that way you know with like it, it's very delirious too the way it's all kind of like yeah. sandwiched together that's the thing like something like with the husband or whatever I feel like in a normal movie that's like maybe like the most shocking thing in the movie or like the most scandalous or whatever and it's just like it's just one of the many things that just uh, add to our uh, confused state that you know we share with the characters here uh, for for me, it's just like if it's something that is so heavily involved in like psychoanalysis and dreams and the mind and like this notion of like flopping identity, it's just like only natural that like the further and further you go in and at the end, like, I don't know, there's no, you can't have a clear cut resolution there. It's just like when trying to understand like the human mind or like probe into like what makes a person or what is like 
what is your identity? You're not going to like, uh, it's impossible to solve that sort of dilemma. It's the only way out is through type of thinking, you know? I do want to read a little bit of cope here from the contemporary review by Pauline Kale, who (laughs) kind of likes it, but like doesn't really get it. And then is really mad at other people for liking it more. Um, (laughs) A classic position to take. (laughs) And I have to say like what she writes about it's, it's my favorite type of kale because I love the writing. And like, if it was about a different movie, I would be like, you're goddamn right, you know? (laughs) And then it's, but it's like, oh, you just don't understand Persona. Uh, She says, it may be that an open puzzle movie like this one, which affects some people very profoundly, permits them to project onto it so much of themselves that what they think the movie is about has very little to do with what happens on the screen. This kind of projection, which we used to think of as the pre-critical responsiveness of the mass audience, is now common in the educated audience. People can be heard saying that they didn't worry about whether it was good or bad, that they just let it happen to them. And if the educated audience is now coming around to the larger audience's way of seeing movies, I would suggest that they are also being sold. Uh, Sorry, stuck page. They're also being sold in the same way as larger audiences. That advertising and the appearance of critical consensus it gives to certain movies are what led people to let certain prestigious movies just happen to them. Just as larger audience lets an oversized musical spoof like Thoroughly Modern Millie happen to them. Awful reference, by the way. Nobody remembers that. She could have said Chitty Chitty Bang Bang there. The idea that art should be experienced, not criticized... Uh, there seems to be little sense that critical faculties are involved in experience and that if they are not involved, advertising determines what is accepted as art. She really goes off the rails there. It feels like yeah. she's not even talking about it's, Persona It feels like all. she's talking about a totally different <laughs> movie that she's mad about people liking and no one was going to read that essay. So she was like, I'll put this part in the Persona review because yeah. people are hot on Persona and I'm not that hot on it, you know? Also, I have to I have to point out, you know, why are your pages stuck together in the Pauline yeah. Kelly yeah, book? Were exactly. you doing a little what? bit of yeah. irresponsible <laughs> reading there? Me and JT were just Malcolm smiling just, at each other <laughs> over that. Just <laughs> glance trying not to giggle as, as hard as possible <laughs> why is page, i only know one reason why pages are stuck together that's the only reason i know <laughs> look she recalls the monologue in the season in the page after that right? <laughs> uh it is it is funny the way she talks because it's like i don't think uh like mainstream audiences let movies happen that's something that they rarely do they come in with like very specific expectations of what they want and if it's not delivered i feel like they're disappointed i don't know if it was different back then you know but it's just uh yeah but like i she does have some salient points there you know that uh, it's 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 some good writing it's some good writing pauline kale good on you you old hag (laughs) hey you, you said your piece you know what i mean a lot of people you know they don't have any opinions so I remember uh, a very condescending Jerry Lewis once said, Pauline Kale, she's a very qualified critic. Very qualified. (laughs) (laughs) That's better in, like, Jerry voice, too. Just him saying qualified. In serious Jerry voice. Like, when Jerry's, you know, when I was making The Bellboy, it was was a very serious, laborious process. And uh, Pauline Kale, she's a very qualified film critic. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I going back to Persona, I, I think that this is a movie that has gotten so much better uh, for me over time as I learn more about cinema and see not just see its influence, but see how much it has influenced my own viewings. You know, like I feel like Persona has created shorthand uh, in a way that few films do, and it, it creates shorthand beyond what Bergman does as a stylist or a, a thinker. Uh, it's like, oh, that's the persona shot in terms of like one of those mirror type shots. Uh, and I, I really just think that uh, as a, a film about films and what they can do to a person's psyche uh, without being a movie magic movie uh, is it's a it's a tight rope to walk but I think that Bergman pulls it off wonderfully here uh, because the film within the film here it's not like it's angelic it's not like it's uh, Ber- baby Bergman being born <laughs> I, I'm gonna go ahead and say that is the abort the point of view of the aborted b- little boy that she was gonna have and that this is like you could read it as Bergman being religious and anti-abortion even. Uh, and that's a that's a pretty harsh reading, you know? Like, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with it. And obviously, I don't agree with that point of view. <laughs> the, the flippantness with which, uh, like, the character talks about abortion and the, the way that he portrays Alma as kind of a, a foolish girl concerned with trifling things, working as a nurse... Uh, where the more psychologically damaged uh, Elizabeth at least is treated with the uh, respect of a high artist. Um, I, I, I just think that there's something potentially really damning about it and traumatic. And it's uh, it's a film that is like based out of a traumatic incident and it spurs so many more. Uh, I, I just think that it's a film that contains... You know, not just an entire person's psyche, but it's it's almost like a rough taking the temperature of the movie-going public's psyche over the last half uh, century or even more uh, up to that point. And it's a film that continues to grow, not just for me, but for audiences. I really hope it continues to be taught as like a almost intro to avant-garde art for people. And I, I, I really think that like no film education is uh, complete without Persona. So I'm going five bullets on Persona. <laughs> It's a, it's a very chalk result. You know, the over underline was like a four and a half and a half. How would you do those half points for how okay. to gamble? <laughs> Eddie, Eddie, I was literally thinking about this. This is kind of disrupt the flow, but I no go for it. Because I saw I saw you rate May December three stars, and I was like, damn! I knew I was like definitely I knew Eddie was going to go under four stars on May December. Yeah, but I would have thought three and a half rather than three. You know what I mean? You know, um, it's funny. Yeah. You are a very good handicapper because I switched it to three and a half, and then <laughs> and then switched it back down. Uh, oh, so I, I've yeah. been back and forth. What? I've been May, May December is a very like high three, low three and a half for me. Yeah. Well, like I I just I just knew like Eddie's gonna like undercut a little bit there i just knew that at least that was gonna happen and like and i was just like i don't have the home field advantage yeah <laughs> um you know not being a straight male move no i'm just kidding um 
<laughs> like I, I, I was like, dang, I should open up a gambling service for like your friend's letterbox ratings. You know what I mean? You know, like I should just like yeah, the half point. I guess you got to go like point two fives and point seven fives for the over unders. Yeah, uh, if you want to get those like the way that you do half points in sports gambling, so you could have put my over under like uh, if you were a handicapper, like trying to make money off of people. Yeah. You, you probably would have put the line at like 3.25. Yeah. Because it's like over or under, there's a good chance you're still getting your money back at three or, you know, whatever. Well, here, here as as the someone who hypothetically run the service, I I guess I would, you know, it's like you would have the 0.25s there, but you'd also, some lines would just be three and a half. You know what I mean? Yeah, you get a push, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think I would set that one at, there's a lot of hype on May, December. You know, Netflix release, so a lot of people saw it. A lot of people are talking about it you know, very positively, you know, a lot of hype on it. So you use that hype to kind of uh, fool the better. You know, maybe we could use uh, the people who donate to our Patreon. If you want to, we could just turn that into a gambling service somehow, or I, I don't I know. I would love that. <laughs> I don't know. How I would works. honestly <laughs> love that. I, I, I want to start like uh, handicapping people's uh, ratings. Cause I've, I've talked about this with like Josh and Alex. <laughs> I'm pretty good at, predict like alex doesn't really do ratings anymore but i'm pretty good at predicting josh's ratings at this point yeah uh, especially like if we watch something together i know definitely where he's going you know like uh or even watch the same movie and talk about it for half a second i know exactly the star rating he's going and so i i would love to be i could be get arrested for insider training fucking uh handicapping josh's lines for the sleezoids <laughs> discord maybe maybe this is a way to popularize our public image it's like oh eddie's yeah. bet on it like just you specifically like oh we could bet on you know eddie just saw the jungle book two and a half stars over or under you know what i mean <laughs> incentivize people to pay attention to what yeah. we say about movies <laughs> yeah we don't reveal the star ratings until the episode so that way yeah, yeah it's yeah. yeah like so it's put a gambling aspect to it so you know more people get into it it's a uh, I don't know. I'm learning the ways of the modern world. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I need, I'm, you know, it's something I, it's just something I thought about. The, the line for every single movie for Colin Brinkman is 4.95. <laughs> and it's like uh, under plus a million over See, minus a million. That's something you throw in a parlay just to like, uh, just increase it a little bit. Like the, the minus just like, all right, I'll throw, I'll throw like stars. 10, I'll throw 10 Brinkman five stars into this parlay real quick. <laughs> It'll bump it up like plus 50 odds. And then like Brinkman gives a movie four stars. It's like, fuck, I lost the house. I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> this is for the real heads out there. <laughs> oh my God. He's another. See, we got to get personalities known for their ratings. To, yeah, to bet on. No, see. absolutely. I I love this idea of get because like gambling becoming legal. It's you have to figure out ways to exploit the market while you can. Mm -hmm. That's what gambling's all about is finding ways to exploit the market. And I think that you know handicapping letterbox scores is a great way to do it. <laughs> we we really got to open up the sports book. So uh, let's say you know what I haven't looked at what Malcolm. Uh, JT, have you seen Malcolm's log yet for Persona this time? I haven't put it. Uh, I haven't put it. No, you haven't put it. I haven't, yeah. I haven't okay, seen so it. JT, I am going to be the handicapper here, and you will be the better. I'm going to place the line for Malcolm's Persona rating at four point seven five. Are you going over or under? You're gonna have to get me into the gambling world here. Okay. What okay. So basically, if you think Malcolm 
is so I think basically that Malcolm's either going to give it a four point five or a four point seven five, right? Okay. Or sorry, a four point five or a five, right? Yeah. So if I'm pu- putting the gambling line in between that, you're picking whether his score is higher than 4.75, which would be 5, or lower, which would be 4.5 or anything lower than 4.5. Uh, I'm going to say under because I'm thinking 4.5. Yeah. Okay, so you're going under Malcolm. Yeah. What is your bullet rating on this? JT, you were right. You know, four and a half... Uh, yes. bullets, you know what I mean? Fuck uh, yes. <laughs> winner, you would have been a winner on that, yeah, JT. But see how happy JT got there? I know not everyone here um not everyone here on the podcast listens to sports or listens watches sports. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's like you might not understand the sports gambling uh, epidemic that's happening right now. The stimulation that you get from sports gambling, I just thought it'd be funny if other people could experience it, you know, who aren't into exactly. sports like, you know, maybe movie people with this handicapping ratings thing somehow you know they got to start integrating into into reality tv i mean i'm sure they are i'm sure people have thought of this already but um i'm gonna throw malcolm's may december in a tease with <laughs> the sweet east uh <laughs> and uh the zone of interest so we're getting a one and a half point tease here so that means zone of interest the lines down to three uh sweeties lines uh down to 2.5 <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty good odds right there. Those are pretty yeah. good odds. All right, Malcolm, Persona. Yeah. Uh, I know you gave it a four and a half, but any final thoughts on it? You know, I, I feel like we talked a lot, but it's just like, yeah, just what a, like, a, I'm just surprised, like, how exact and, like, just cutting this movie is and, like, how, I don't know, like, every shot seems so meticulously crafted, but it um, it flows in a way that feels, you know, kind of a natural but also at the same time just kind of like uh you know unnatural because all this you know confusing stuff is happening and uh i don't know it's it's a very particular mood that i feel like you know a lot of movies have tried to replicate and you know there's definitely been some great movies out of it but it's like this one just still kind of hits in a very specific way and uh i don't know it's just very impressive um and and it, 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 it you know, your line to kind of like it's a modernism, like film modernism and like psychoanalysis kind of clashing. It it, it does kind of feel like a perfect uh, moment there. And for Bergman to kind of, you know, go out of his wheelhouse and kind of just having having the know how to create something like that, to have his finger on the pulse, kind of show people, you know, I'm not just a. Uh, I'm not just wild strawberries. I'm not an old man contemplating on life. I know what's going on right now. You know what I mean? They thought I was wild strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> they thought I was that old guy in wild strawberries. Nah, man, I'm still I'm still out here, you know, just like you, you know. So uh, Bergman, yeah, Bergman's, like we've said before, and we've, ta- we've kind of discussed this, you know, it is like Bergman, him being like an early cinephile, you know, gateway, you know, people, people are like, maybe sometimes are like, dismiss him as they get deeper into stuff but he's a guy that you know he, he'll keep surprising you if, if you let him so yeah and we we do have an email about the whole bergman reputation thing that we'll get to in a minute yeah. here but jt final thoughts and a rating here uh yeah i'm gonna go five bullets and it's hard to like sell or like talk about like i feel like persona became like, especially in terms of, like, how it's been parodied so much, like, Bergman seems to dominate the mode of, like, 
an art house movie, which is very funny because, or I mean, especially like European art house, which is funny because that's such like a nebulous, like, how do you define that as like a genre? I mean, obviously like abstraction, like, uh, less like narrative presence, things like that. So it's just like, it's, it's very funny to make films that sort of define something so nebulous and that large. Uh, but within that, it's just like you have this sort of stereotypical pre- impression of like what like the dour serious art house film is, and uh, Bergman has done that. Like obviously, you mentioned like Winter Light, things that are a little bit more like heavy, dealing with like religion, all that type of jazz. He he's he knows he has many different styles of play. Bergman can do it all. This it's just like I don't know. It feels like such you bring up like hoping it's still continues to be taught in film school is like absolutely because it's such a major foundational text there and i feel like is also like if you show this to like a young person or whatnot subverts all expectations of like what like serious like filmmaking like quote unquote should be because like it's a tight like 82 minutes like it's like i mean i don't want to say like playful and fun necessarily but it has like an energy and a vitality to it that like if you're going into this as someone who's just like getting into film i feel like it shakes a lot of expectations of what uh like more avant-garde and experimental work can be totally yeah yeah it is this movie's not that this makes it any better or worse but this movie's still like kind of hip right like you could show it to a young kid now and it's still it still would yeah it would kind of rattle them a little bit that's kind of hey, impressive depends how young the kid is you might have to leave the room for a little bit <laughs> <laughs> or hit the fast forward i guess showing showing kid i wonder if some some someone's got to be doing that showing their kids like young kids like three-year-olds like a bunch of art house movies like i wonder if it makes them a, a genius or a psycho i don't know i wonder what happens Genius or psycho? The only two. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like that Mark Zuckerberg poster for Social Network, like, <laughs> but with Bergman. <laughs> you don't get to sixty films without making a few enemies. <laughs> Rosenbaum. We'll be right back on extended clip. And we're back on Extended Clip. Time for a little email. Uh, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com is where you can reach us. Uh, this one comes from Jake. It says, hey, guys, love the show and hope you're all doing well. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. Uh, next email. Uh, oh, wait, oh, he continues. Sorry. Uh, Ingmar and Brian, referring to our last couple episodes here on Persona and uh, Dahlia by Brian De Palma, 
Ingmar and Brian are two of my absolute boys, and I'd love to go on about both of them, but I won't get greedy with your time. My question. I get the sense that Bergman has a reputation for being a sort of baby's first auteur, and at least speaking anecdotally, it's true. I remember being a freshman in college and watching stuff like Persona and Through a Glass Darkly on my laptop after getting serious about film and seeking out the stronger stuff. Uh, it was formative, and I'm glad I did it, but in hindsight, I feel like it's odd to have zeroed in on this severe modernist Swedish guy as a sort of trail guide when I was essentially just starting out. It seems like learning to swim by jumping in the deep end. Unless I'm just projecting here, what is it about Bergman that has made him an appropriate entry point to bigger international slash art house worlds? And if you don't think that's the case, is there anyone who has supplanted him in that role? Thank you, Jake. Well, that's mm. a very good question. Um, so I think popularity is unfortunately going to be your answer for why he is held in such high esteem uh, in terms of a starting point, because I would agree that like a nascent cinephile, uh, you know, Bergman probably isn't the thing to show them, especially with history on your side. In the 60s, maybe, if all you've seen is Hollywood movies uh, up till that point, yeah, I think Persona or any of Bergman's work is going to kind of blow your mind. Uh, but, like, if you're growing up these days and you've seen, you know, your American indies and all that and you want to take a step deeper, I don't know if uh, Bergman's really the guy if you're, like, 17 years old or whatever. I, I think it does make more sense to wait till you're a little matured. It's. I think it's. It's also interesting because, like, the way you said, like, if you only seen Hollywood movies and then you saw a Bergman, that would really kind of like you know maybe give you a perspective shift. And like, I think obviously, like, part of the reason Bergman's so popular is like how he was perceived back then too. You know what I mean? And then like, like, uh, you know, of him being like one of the big international names. You know, that's you know somewhat popular in america a genius and a tramp yeah and uh it kind of like i think part of the reason like why bergman i mean obviously the quality of his films is why he's talked about but it's like part of the part of that is like like to fully understand everything it's like well like you know obviously we, we said woody allen was influenced by bergman and there's tons of others people who were influenced by bergman and kind of like by continuing to watch his movies you're kind of tapping into the same history that everyone else kind of experienced in in a strange way so it's like mm -hmm. since since he was so popular back then i feel like that's why you know he and you know he still is now just because you know you're trying to you know approximate you know how people digested things but obviously that's not something you need to do you know anymore especially with the freedom of the internet you could really um, yeah. get into movies in many different ways and i guess for is like is he a good starting point it's like uh i don't know it's interesting like where are kids starting now because it's like obviously i guess kids are getting into art films through like a24 movies and but that's mm -hmm. not like the comparison well you i hear say. the kids are doing tiktok these days <laughs> so uh wow. you know yeah. i don't know if belatar or ho shao shen are really uh raking in the clicks on tiktok yeah but uh who knows what they're doing well i was gonna i was gonna say because it's like he asked the question like what is getting like people into like international and art house it's like 
probably like A24 films is the most realistic answer, but it's like mm-hmm. Bergman's kind of like the guy you watch after you watch those A24 films. I'm sure there were like films yeah. you're like that kind of were like a gateway into like another gateway, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you could say that about the new Hollywood stuff that was so influenced mm-hmm. by European art films, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, you thought Easy Rider was crazy. Check out some of these like 60s European films, you know, they're, they'll really blow your mind. Yeah, it feels I definitely agree with what you're saying, Malcolm, in terms of like a 24 style movies like being like a gateway into things that are a little bit more strange like the comparison feels like correct but i don't know they just feel like different like i don't know if what necessarily like not all of a24's movies are like hardcore art house output Mm -hmm. so i feel like that's where i feel like there's a little bit of a challenge and i feel like it's just like yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to consider in my mind. I feel like now I think I have ideas of filmmakers who would be a good starting point. Like I feel like Kiristami would be someone who's uh like has like a richness to him and is like modern uh, in a way that I feel like you could tap into. Yeah, I, f- I feel like, you know, you could put it just like in the festival circuit contemporarily. You know, Bergman is just yeah. the guy who lasted 70 yeah. years. Like, uh, his, his movies played New York Film Festival when they came out uh, for the most part. And it's like, or not all of them or whatever, but at least Persona was a, a NIF yeah. uh, American premiere. And it's like, look at the filmmakers at NIF this year. It's You got Hong Sang-soo uh, putting stuff out every year. Uh, Angela Shanelik and, uh, you know, some some uh, Yorgos Lantimos and uh, Wang Bing and uh, Todd Haynes and uh, 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 Sofia Coppola. And it, it makes sense. There, there are always going to be, like, the class of filmmakers that are both the kind of more uh like one step away from mainstream and then one step further deep into the art house and i feel like the kind of wrap-up festivals like nif are a good way to kind of uh get a get a vibe check on who those filmmakers are at this present day like sophia coppola you know it's it's makes sense to see her as like a historical analog for the more artsy Hollywood movies in the seventies that maybe people saw them and then they seeked out the Bergman and Godard films that influenced them the way that people will watch Sofia Coppola and then maybe eventually watch both Antonioni and Chantal Ackerman, you know? Yeah. Availability and streaming, you know, is still a big part of this because, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, a lot of downloaders out there. We're all downloaders. We we get our files whenever we want. You know, we're we're kind of, you know, we're demanding like that. I want my movies and I want them now. But there's there's a lot of people who just just the idea of that is just too much effort for them, you know, to learn how to do that. It's just not something that they're willing to do. And so streaming is still a big part of it. So I feel like Bergman still kind of remains in that popularity just because you could watch like 20 of his movies on Criterion and kind of like these Criterion European art house staples are still pretty popular and kind of serving the same roles that they always have, like Godard, Truffaut, you know, all the classic names. I, you know, I feel like it's it's still somewhat similar in, in that, you know, just due to availability. But there's like... 
like uh you could also go kiristami with that too like jt said yeah i think a lot of the criticism sometimes with bergman is that like it's like maybe there isn't enough focus on you know like non-european countries or whatever and you know that's 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 a valid complaint go watch those movies those are out there you know what i mean but uh, i feel like bergman i guess for like what's like a good starting point i feel like anywhere is a good starting point Mm -hmm. maybe i'm thinking too broadly with this no it all depends on the viewer like what your basis is if you say i want to get deeper into movies as it were uh, to quote both pauline kale and yola tango you can just like go based off what you like like it doesn't even have to be movie wise you could say oh i don't even watch movies so how do i do that well what tv do you like what books do you like what music do you like there's always going to be aesthetic modes for you to chase so you know someone who loves to read uh, my year of rest and relaxation and uh, their favorite musical artist is Playboy Cardi. Like, I'm not going to tell them, like, Bergman is your guy. Like, you should get into (laughs) film through Bergman. I might say something more like, uh, I don't know, fucking uh, Edward Yang or someone slightly more contemporary about cultural alienation and stuff like that. Uh, with, with more, you know, contemporary popular sensibilities. So maybe even Sofia Coppola. Uh, but then again, if you like uh, Woody Allen and reading about philosophy, I'm going to tell you to fucking watch Persona uh, right away or reading about psychoanalysis, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if Frasier's your favorite <laughs> TV show. Uh, <laughs> if you're into women, check out Persona. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're if you're into, like, poly play, check out Smiles of a Summer Night. Uh, <laughs> play i love calling it play play is the worst uh, uh, fun and games for all this playing uh, around God, one of my least favorite <laughs> things but yeah no you malcolm you're right about like the entry points kind of being the same though i mean when i was getting more serious about like art house films uh the, the streamer i was using was uh back when the hulu uh, criterion mm-hmm. collaboration was as strong as it ever was and yeah it was like the splash page on that it was like hey get into your kurosawa bergman fellini and Truffaut. And it's like, all right, I'll check them all out. And I like, uh, it's really easy to just fucking like, also, it's not that big of a deal if you watch a 90 minute movie and it doesn't move you like big deal. You watched uh, an artistic groundbreaking thing and it wasn't really for you next. You know, it's not a big deal. Like, uh, so if you don't love persona, then just like zag away from that within the art house collection or whatever, you know, maybe go for a Kurosawa or an Ozu, uh, you know, but anyway, so I, I, I think about like the, the masters are probably there for a reason. There's an easy film school hot take zag to call Bergman overrated. Uh, like I still haven't gotten on the Fellini wavelength, to be completely honest. But, you know, it's everyone has their tastes. I'm not going to say that he shouldn't be one of those art house entry points or anything like that. Um, but to get back to the writer's original question. Yeah, I, I feel like the the festivals are always a good way to gauge who the kind of soft and hard entry points are for the uh the the tip of the iceberg versus diving into the deepness yeah. in the abyss and on a much smaller level like all like with all like this letterbox stuff or like film twitter yeah. or whatever like it does like kind of like incentivize film watching in like a social way. Well, I don't know if you've heard yeah. this, but I heard some people are, are even performative on Letterboxd. I, you know, well, that's not... if, if that's if that's true, then it's, that's has to be the end of the world. If someone if someone's being if I just heard that someone's being performative, that's that's something that I could never conceptualize happening. So 
It'd be a huge shocker to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next email. Fire it away. All right. This one goes to our, uh, it's a follow-up to our last episode uh, that we did. Uh, it says, De Palma question from Chris. Hello, boys. Being born and raised a Pennsylvanian, I get fascinated by filmmakers and artists who were also from the Keystone State and what, if anything, growing up in PA adds to their work. David Lynch famously incorporated his sensory experiences of living in the post-industrial hellscape of Philly into a razor head. De Palma is a similarly uh, is a similar Philly boy, but from the main line. With JT also being bo- a born and raised Pennsylvanian and living in Philly, and Eddie newly transplanted to the city of brotherly love, I'm curious if you see any influence from Philly and or Pennsylvania. Uh, at large in De Palma's work other than Blowout, which might be the best Philly set film. Or are there just any other uh, Philly slash PA filmmakers and films that are your favorites? JT, I'm going to I'm gonna bounce this one to you first uh, as someone who's lived here. Outside of the locations in Blowout, do you do you get that Pennsylvania feeling from Mr. De Palma? It's, that's interesting. I feel like for me... Uh, like the Pennsylvania, I feel like categorizes in like smaller, like you, you can kind of divide it into like two groups. I feel like almost, I mean, I think there are obviously a lot of, uh, shades in between, but it's a state with like two huge cities, uh, Philly and Pittsburgh. Uh, and I feel like you have like kind of a more, uh, obviously liberal like sensibility there Philly I feel like you have kind of the stereotype is like a South Philly kind of a guy like kind of dumb like Italian guy you find those a lot of uh, in a lot of cities but there's the mm-hmm. attitude of like uh, a, like underdog pissed off guy kind of that that to me feels like the Philly vibe and mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily if that yeah, no, De Palma is not a nobody believes in us guy. <laughs> like that's De Palma does not have that boat. He makes fun of the nobody believes yeah, in us he, guys. Yeah, exactly. I think he believes in himself too much. Yeah. No, it's because De Palma went to Hollywood and saw the the belly of the beast. Like I think De Palma's just like above regionally specific cultural mindsets, you know? Yeah, I mean I do think there is like certainly in blowout uh, there I feel like there are I, fuck, I'm blanking on what other movie of his I found, like, some type of loose, uh, like, Philly connection. But, I mean, I definitely share this fascination uh, with Chris where it's, like, every – like, I'm looking for it in movies. Like, Mikey and Nikki mm-hmm. was shot in Philly and doesn't particularly look like it. I mean, it's super fucking, like, dark – like that yeah. movie, so it's like, and I think it was shot like other places uh, aside from like Philly as well. But like that's in it. Um, I mean, the big one that people go to certainly is like Rocky, like Creed, yeah. that type of thing. Um, which I don't know. I want. I've been since getting into Philly representation on film. I want to uh, reevaluate those. Um, but I mean, M Night, I think, is like of course the all biggest, the M Night ones, yeah, the biggest Philly boy. And then I have to shout out like uh, uh, Tony Scott's Unstoppable for like mm. that, like that is the opposite end of like the 
urban Pennsylvania for me is like the middle of nowhere, like sort of red state PA where you're just yeah. like a lot of like kind of woodsier, just like, I don't know, the, like just country suburbs bullshit. I feel like out a, there. the deer hunter kind of gets that. Isn't deer hunter? Oh, deer hunter too. Deer yeah. hunters, Pittsburgh. Yeah. I was going to say yeah. deer hunters, like my favorite Pennsylvania film, probably just like the, the beginning stuff in that is so good. Uh, but other than like something like Unbreakable, which I love just as, uh, you know, he him feeling the pulse of crime in a city, uh, which is kind of a stereotypical thing for a movie like that. But I, I love the way M. Night depicts Philly in that. I was going to say Witness, Peter Weir, uh, Harrison Ford movie is like very Philly. It's like, uh, mm. I don't know, I, that one's a lot of fun. It's a little Amish boy witnesses a murder in the bathroom of uh, the Amtrak station here and then uh, Ford is like a cop that has to go undercover in Amish country so that is probably like the most just hardcore like real like Pennsylvania feeling to it because I think you're I mean there are Amish like groups like uh in other states i forget where else has other big amish populations but i think pennsylvania oftentimes is like especially like lancaster's like that's amish I was gonna say, that's where they're driving through uh in kingpin right that's the amish country oh, yeah. In kingpin yeah yeah so yeah. it's just like i think uh witness is definitely up there in the pennsylvania canon mm-hmm. my favorite philly film is uh rocky four but only the dolph lundgren training scenes uh, which are all in russia <laughs> does uh you know how like new york has like a like a you know a lot of movies shot in new york like you know like snowy winter new york or like la has like the palm tree type of vibe like you know going to philly like is there is there like kind of like damn i'm in a movie moment when you're walking through philly or is that more is that not there maybe are you guys kind of getting what i'm describing here I, I get what you're describing because I've felt it in New York as well, yeah. uh, like being in familiar locations from films and stuff. But for Philly, that doesn't really feel like it. I okay. don't know. Old City a little bit because of all the historic buildings, but it doesn't really feel like I'm in a movie. It feels like I'm in a, a PBS documentary. You oh, know? That's, cool. that's a movie. But I like that too. <laughs> yeah. When I saw like David Lynch speak, when he was like signing like his like autobiography that came out, there was uh, like s- some question he was answering where he was talking about like walking through Los Angeles and just like the architecture and like a particular type of tree. He was like, you get like the feeling of like being alive in like old Hollywood, like kind of mm. a feeling. And I definitely that's something that like resonated like hardcore. Uh, when I was living out there and it's something that I don't I don't really feel like I'm in a movie in Philly um, but I I do feel like the sense of like colonial history in like old city okay. like especially neighborhoods like near where I live like in particular I walk around their old buildings like cemeteries that have uh, men who died in like 1700s shit like that yeah and that does like that evokes that time period so i get that kind of a feeling but again that's that's pre-cinema baby we're uh we're uh we're cruising in in the before times that's a good that's a good feeling a nice historic feeling that's that's good you know I get, the movie stuff might just be because so many movies shot in la and new york you know what i mean yeah that, of course. that's probably just it 
I was I was trying to see if that it was somewhere else, you know. Uh, we got one more email wow. here on this episode. This questions. one comes from Eric. Uh, it says, "Hey EC, hope you're doing well and happy holidays." I just saw May December and was wondering if the same scenario happened to you <laughs> with an older woman, who would you want it to be with? <laughs> Uh, he then says best eric from the discord who still hasn't subbed yet sorry i have the money just not enough time to listen to that many podcasts wow okay if you guys put out a book or something i'd buy that though all right so this guy's just like i don't like the tone yeah i like that (laughs) that was first you're implicating us as victims of statutory uh rape and then you're just like, oh, by the way, I have more money than you. Okay. I mean, you know, it's okay if you don't subscribe. You don't have to let us know. We're not, like, searching it up. Maybe Eddie, but I'm not, you know, we're not searching it up and, like, matching your name. You know, you don't need to. And I have answers to that question, but I'm not giving it to you. But I do have an answer to that question. Yeah, you do have to pay for the answer. <laughs> the answer the answer might be too specific. You know, it might not. You'd just be like, who is that? And I'd be like, well, you wanted an answer, you know. Malcolm is thinking of a very particular teacher he had uh, in the sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was one of the, that was like, I was, they were considered. You know what I mean, but not <laughs> considering your answer. That was a top three consideration yeah. answer. So no, I was wrong. also I also did a lot of deep consideration on this, but unfortunately, uh, this is a public episode, so yeah. you know you're gonna have to pay for the answer on that one. Sorry, Eric. I know I know money's not really a concern for you, so it's like just you know, naming people not that from big of a deal <laughs> on the show. No, I can't do that. Oh. Uh, JT, I also assume you do not have an answer for this question. Um. Yeah. No. I'm gonna. I'm gonna respectfully decline. For once, I'm gonna take the high road. <laughs> I'm gonna plead the fifth, as it were. Mm-mm. I'm gonna plead the fifth grader. Great. That's a good word. <laughs> I think he'll subscribe now. After that. After hearing that. Yeah. That's. That, I just heard a cha-ching hit the Patreon after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's gonna do it for this week's extended clip. Uh, of course, donate to the Patreon. $5 a month gets you an extra episode every single week. Our last bonus episode was on De Palma's The Black Dahlia, and the next one is going to be on Todd Solon's Happiness. Uh, yeah, we're getting we're getting freaky lately here on Extended Clip. Uh, so, yeah, and you can, of, of course, always uh, reach out to us, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on the socials, all that bullshit. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time, babies. Please put down your hands Cause I see you